For Ed Smart, it was worse than any nightmare he had ever faced. A horde of reporters on his front lawn and him having to speak to all of them. Overcome with emotion, he stepped to this battery of microphones and spoke directly to his daughter and said, Elizabeth, if you're still alive, know that we will do whatever it takes to find you. He fought back tears as he addressed his kid, her kidnappers and said, please let her go. Please let her go. And people from all over the country felt anxiety for the smarts as they heard the story of their 14-year-old daughter who had been taken from her bedroom just the night before. For months, the kidnappers held Elizabeth captive, forced to wear a wig in disguise. She would often be closer to their Salt Lake City home than they even realized. They would take her into restaurants that she frequently participated or frequently ate in with her family, but no one identified her. Experts believe that she fell prey to what is often called the Stockholm Syndrome, in which uh, someone who has been taken captive <clears throat> begins to believe that her family, the Smarts, were no longer her family, and her abductors were actually the family that she was feeling closer to and could sympathize and identify with them. Nine months later, Elizabeth was at a crossroads. Literally and figuratively. A police officer walked up to her and began to have a conversation with her. Um, and the police officer said to her, asked her a few questions, and she blurted out, I am not Elizabeth Smart, no matter what you think. That's not who I am. The police officer asked about the wig she was wearing. She said, no, this is my real hair. The officer questioned her about the couple who was with her, and she was adamant that they were her parents, even though they were in fact her kidnappers. So close, so lost, but so close to home. So close to being found, but not even knowing it. Remember a time when that was true of you? Pre-GPS, you're driving around. I know we just went past that 10 minutes ago. And we just went past it, you know. Or maybe it's the feeling of being lost in a corn maze where you know there's a way out. You keep following these blue ropes, and I know we were right here in this exact same spot. How do we get through the corn to get out? Maybe financially. You're working hard, you're paying the bills, but you seem stuck in this vicious cycle of just getting by. And you wonder, what's going to happen when one time there's an emergency and we can't just get by? Maybe you felt this way with God. That one time you and God were close. You felt this connection with God. But now as you think about God, He just seems somewhere off in the distance. And for some of you, you ditched God a long time ago, but God's bringing you back. And you're not quite sure how or why, but He's drawing you back. For others, you've been here. You didn't go anywhere. But God seems as close to you as a relative who passed away a long time ago. As we enter a new series, as we're making our way towards Easter next month, I want us to spend the next five weeks um, taking a pause for our church's anniversary celebration, culminating with Easter, for us to consider this idea of finding your way back to God. Finding your way back to God. And as we walk through this process, I want to talk to you about four awakenings that I believe God longs to stir in each one of our hearts and our lives. Last week I said that many people that we meet who come to our church, whether it's in our next gatherings or conversations we have with them, and we say, you know, why did you come to CCC? And we often hear this statement, I was just looking for something more. 
I was just looking for something more. And we believe those more, that more is often connected to their deep longing of their relationship with God. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to look at some of these longings, some of these awakenings that we are praying that God will stir in your heart and stir in your life. One of those is an awakening to longing that there's got to be something more. We're going to talk about that next week. And then we're going to talk about awakening to regret. I wish that I could start over. I won't ask how many of you have said that statement. I wish that I could start over. How about awakening to help? I can't do this on my own. And lastly, on Easter Sunday, awakening to love. God loves me deeply after all. We began this year with a challenge on our finances. And I gave you the 90-day giving challenge and challenged you to give 10% of your income back to God. And, And a number of you have been doing that, and I continue to hear stories every single week. And that challenge was, will I trust God with my finances, with the money? Will I trust Him with that? And then last month, as Johnny said, we talked about our time. And I challenged you to take a 24-hour window of time and set that aside and receive that as a gift that God is offering to you, the gift of Sabbath. And many of you started to do that. You started to carve out a little window of time on Sunday afternoon and said, you know, for this window of time, we're going to set aside technology. You know, we're going to set aside worry. We're going to set aside work. We're going to set aside the to-do list. And we're just going to be present with each other. And I said, challenge you to do that. I said it's not going to come without some challenges, some ups and downs. But I believe that this is a gift that God wants to offer to each of us every single week. And so we're going to jump now into this challenge of what does it look like for me simply to trust God? Simply to trust God. Not with my money, not with my time, but simply to trust God literally with my life. Our series is going to be centered around a story in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles and want to turn to uh, Luke 15, Luke 15, the page number on the screen is in the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. Um, you can turn there and you can read along or listen along as I tell the story. It's a story that Jesus told. It's called a parable. It's not an actual story. It didn't actually happen, but it's a parable about two individuals, excuse me, three individuals, a father and two sons. And the story begins with this younger son going to his father and saying, Dad, it's time for me to give up, give me my inheritance. It's time for me to go. And then we think, oh, why would that be such a bad thing? But in that culture, it was as if the son said to his father, Dad, I don't really want you to be here any longer, so I'm going to imagine you're dead, so give me the money that's owed me as if you were dead. Very humiliating. But the father says, if that's what you want, that's what I'll give to you. So the father somehow took half of his possessions and everything that he owned, gave it to his son, and his son went off. And the story goes, he went away, far away, where nobody knew him. Nobody knew his story. Nobody knew about him. Made a lot of friends. Partied hard. Wasted all his money. It's all gone. He has nothing left. And then a famine hits in the land. And nobody has any money to give him or any food to give him. So he says, what am I going to do? Well, he finds a farmer who needs some help taking care of his hogs, and that's what he chooses to do. Now, in the Jewish culture, um, pigs were considered unclean. It was an animal they were not supposed to have any association with. So this was the lowest, most humiliating, degrading experience of this, that this man could have ever faced. 
But he goes and does it. And as he goes and does that, he's watching the, the pigs gnaw on these corn cobs, and he's thinking, you know, I, I don't even have anything to gnaw on, let alone the corn cobs. And as he's thinking about this, he thought, he, he, this thought comes to his mind, you know, those servants back at home at Dad's place, they have a roof over their head, they got three meals, they got a bed to lay in, I, I don't have any of that. Maybe that's what I should do. Maybe I should just go back to Dad and say, Dad, would you, you got any openings for me? You got any places I can jump in and, and work? And I'll just be your servant. And so he concocts this plan. He repeats the story over and over in his head. And as he's making his way back to his dad's property, he gets kind of in the region. And as he gets near his father's home, his father sees him from a long ways away. And his father takes off running to him. Fathers in those days didn't run. Dignified men didn't run. But this father ran. This father ran with his arms open wide to his son. And as he got to his son, his son started in his rehearsed speech and said, Dad, I, I've really messed up. I've blown it. I've wasted all the money that you, you gave me and, and I'm not worthy to do anything. Is there any chance you got a job that I could work as just a servant for you? And the father said, don't even say those words. He said, my son who was lost is now found. My son who is gone is now home. And he turned to one of his servants and he said, bring him some clothes, get him cleaned up, put my ring on his finger that signifies he's my own, and let's start preparing a feast for my son. And the son, I think, had to be somewhat flabbergasted about that experience, not really even knowing what was happening to him. But he gets whisked away, he gets cleaned up, gets put on a fresh, fresh set of clothes and there's this bustle about the household as they're preparing food and cleaning and getting ready because if you're going to have a feast, you're going to invite all your family, you're going to invite all the neighbors, you're going to invite the whole community. Meanwhile, the older brother, who we haven't met yet, comes in from the fields. And he's like, what's going on? I didn't know there was anything on the calendar. Nobody told me about this. And they said, well, didn't you hear? And they said, hear what? He said, hear what? And he said, your brother who is lost is is now found. Your brother who is dead is now alive. And the older brother said, what are you talking about? Why are they throwing a party for him? And anger and rage just filled his whole being. And he went and came and found his father. And he exploded on his father and said, how dare you celebrate this son who literally, who practically robbed you blind, took half of your inheritance, shamed and humiliated you, and now you're throwing him a party? But I've been here all of these years, working, serving, doing everything you expected of me, and you never celebrated me. The father said, my son who is lost is now found. Would you come and celebrate? And the older son, embarrassed, humiliated his father by saying, no, I will not go into that celebration. And the father said, that's your choice, but I'm going to celebrate my son who is lost and now is found. And as we talk about that story over the next couple weeks, the story really is a picture of us, of us. And all of us can see ourselves in one of those two sons. Uh, some of you will see yourself with the son that kind of said, I'm going to go my own way. 
I don't want to follow mom and dad's way. I don't want to follow their faith. I don't want to follow their belief system. I don't want to follow their rules. I'm just going to do my own thing. And you did that for a season. Others of you stayed. And you followed the rules. You did what you were supposed to. But in the process, your self-righteousness and your arrogance slowly grew in your heart. You know, many of us can see ourselves in one of these two sons. I know which one I see myself in. What about you? What about you? You know, for some of you this morning, you're here today as part of a journey of coming back to God. And so you deeply resonate with this prodigal son, and it makes sense to you. It's been part of your journey for a long time. And others of you, you've been here, you never left. And you've been here, you've been coming week after week, maybe since you were a younger child, you've been coming, you've been doing what you're supposed to. But God seems so far away. For others of you, God's always felt a little bit like He's on the outside. And you're looking in. And you wonder what it takes to be on the inside. In the 17th century, there was a mathematician, his name was Pascal, uh, one of the most brilliant men of his time and in the history of Western civilization. He grew up knowing about God, but never really fully committing to believing God and following God. He had this experience one night in the middle of the night where God showed up in his life and that changed everything. And this experience ignited a passion in him to introduce others to the God who he met, the God who he knew loved him, and the God who he was choosing to follow. And he said, what will it take for me to convince my intellectual friends that there is a God and he's worth giving your life to? And so Pascal came up with this thing called Pascal's Wager. He dared them to step into a belief about God and see if God was going to show up and change their lives. He put it this way. He said, let us weigh the gain and the loss in believing in God and see what happens. Because he says, if you choose to believe in God and this truth is right, you have gained everything, not only in this life, but in the life to come. But he said, if you choose to believe in God and you come to the end of your life and you die... And there's nothing. What have you lost? You really lost nothing at all. And so he says, wager then without hesitation that God truly exists. In finding your way back to God, the first step is deciding, am I willing to take the risk? That's what a wager is. You're risking that something that you're going to offer is going to be better than what you have right now. You're wagering this risk that you just might find a kind of love and acceptance that only God can offer to you. You're wagering that you just might find a purpose and a meaning in your life that you've not found anywhere in your search and in your journey. I said, John, how do I go about that process? Well, I'm going to challenge you as we're in this series together to pray this prayer that's going to come up on the screen. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. God, if you're real, and many of you may say that you believe that God is. 90% of our culture believes that there's a God that exists. But how many believe that God is real to them? That God shows up in their lives? That God is daily active and present, involved in your life? And that's what God longs 
to be. Jeremiah 29, prophet Jeremiah says this, You will call on me and come pray to me. God says, excuse me, through the prophet Jeremiah. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. You see, God's not playing some type of a cosmic hide-and-seek game where He's hiding somewhere and He's just baiting you, but you're never going to find Him. God says, if you pursue me, if you seek after me, you will find me. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says this, if you seek, Moses is saying, if you seek the Lord your God, you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and your soul. In Proverbs, God says, I love those who love me and those who seek me. What happens? They find me. And in James 4, James says this, If you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. You see, God's not holding you out here. God's waiting for you. God's waiting for me. And God's saying, will you take this risk that if you move towards God, that God is going to show up and move towards you? you so there's a few things that this isn't this is not being more religious this is not being more religious this is not more rules this is not more regulations this is not more doing this is not you sign up for something and now you got more things that you can't do and more things that you're supposed to do the religious leaders in matthew 23 jesus encountered them and he says this so you must be careful to do everything they tell you but don't do so listen but don't do what they're doing For they don't practice what they preach. They just add heavy loads to people and put them on their shoulders, but they're not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done just for people to see it. You see, their hearts were cold and judgmental. They were just full of rules and regulations. And coming home to God is not just changing and sprucing everything up on the outside. I'm pretty sure the prodigal son looked and smelled worse when he came back to God than when he left the father initially. God doesn't say clean your act up and then you'll be ready for me. God doesn't say any of those things. God doesn't say clean your act up and then you can be baptized. No, God doesn't say any of those things. God says, are you willing to come to me just as you are? Are we willing to come to me just as you are? The second thing, it's not, it's not eliminating all your doubts. It's not eliminating all your doubts. You know, I thought for years... That if I could just understand people's arguments about God, and if I could answer their questions, that they would just choose God. And they didn't. They didn't. And I realized it wasn't about erasing all of their doubts. There's a choice that has to be made if you're going to follow after God. In John chapter 20, one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, the other disciples had met Jesus. They believed in who Jesus was. And Thomas says, I'm not believing unless I see some evidence. Thomas was a skeptic. You have to prove it to him. And so the other disciples said, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas says, I need to see the nail marks. Put my finger is where his hands are and my hand in his side. I won't believe. I don't think Thomas believed that Jesus was going to show up. I don't think he believed it. But Jesus did. Jesus did. And he said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out to my hands and put it in my side. He says, stop doubting. Stop doubting. And this is not eliminating all of your doubts. I mean, God showed up for Thomas, 
But I think Thomas still had more questions. You see, in the process of faith, there's a component where um, our faith will get stalled if we wait to figure everything out. If you try to figure out all the mysteries of science before you're going to choose to follow God, you're never going to choose to follow God. If you have to understand all the complexities of the Bible and the components of that that just don't make logical sense, you're never going to choose to follow God. You see, trust has a component of faith always wrapped within it. If I said I trusted my wife, but I sent someone out to follow her with a camera and record all of her movements, do I really trust her? No, I don't trust her. I don't have faith in her. And part of following God is the mystery that God is, that we will never figure God out, that we will never understand everything there is to God, and that we will marvel at His greatness and His wonder. And the third thing that this is not, finding our way back to God, it's not... Um, it's not cutting a deal with God. It's cutting a deal with God. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm guilty of wanting God to do something for me, but not having time to be with God. Notice I didn't say not wanting to be with God. Wanting something from God, but not having the time to be with God. It's like come, saying this, I will come back to you, God, if you will, fill in the blank. I'll come back to you, God, if you will help me find a better job. I'll come back to you, God, if you somehow will put my family back together. I'll come back to you, God, if somehow you'll restore my marriage. I'll come back to you, God, if somehow you help me come up with a little more money than I've got at the end of the week. I'll come back to you, God, if you help me bury the pain of my past. I'll come back to you, God, if somehow the ache in my heart would just lessen. You know, it's a little bit like a college student who comes home and says, Hey, Mom, would you mind doing my laundry for me? i got a pile here. And your mom's like, Sure, I'd be happy to do your laundry for you. And then, and then they come over to Dad and they say, Hey, Dad, I'm kind of running low on funds. You know, you got some extra funds. And Dad opens the wallet up and says, Here you go, I've got some extra funds. And then, and then Mom and Dad say, Hey, you got some time that we can sit around the table and have dinner? No, I'm too busy. i got to go. Got to go. It's not cutting a deal with God. If you do this for me, then I'll do this. You see, the prodigal son moved from entitlement, this is what you owe me, to humility, which is you owe me nothing, and can I serve you? He didn't find his way back through religious activities. He didn't find his way back through answering all his questions. He didn't find his way back through cutting a deal with God. He had to come to the end of himself. He had to be broken. He had to repent. He had to say, I don't have anything left, and there's nowhere else for me to turn except I'm going to choose to find my way back to God. And so finding your way back to God, what does it look like? I think there's a couple things that it looks like. I think the first thing it looks like is it looks like surrender. It's surrender. Instead of trying to be religious, instead of trying to solve all my, solve all my questions, instead of trying to earn my favor with God, it's saying, God, I give up. God, I turn myself in. God, I'm done. And when I think of surrender, I think of the story of a man by the name of Job in the Old Testament. Job probably lived shortly after the creation of the world. Job was a man who was incredibly wealthy. Um, Job was well-respected as a business and landowner. He had apparently a fabulous family, and he was a man that followed after God. So there was nobody more right with God than Job. 
like this guy's got it all going for him. But God allowed each of those things to be taken away from him. God allowed his family, all of his kids were killed. God allowed his holdings, all of his wealth to disappear. God allowed his health to be put in great jeopardy. And this man who at one point was more righteous than anyone could not make sense out of what was happening in his life. And he lost his connection with God. His friends said, well, the only way this happens to somebody is you've got to blow it really bad for this. You must have done this. Job's like, nope, didn't happen to me. Another friend said, well, you must have done this. Job's like, nope, didn't do that one. Third friend said, well, you must have done this. It's the only way this... Job's like, no, no. I said, nobody gets hammered this bad if you didn't screw up in some way. Nobody. Nobody. And so as Job is ranting to God and he's saying to God, and we're going to talk about Job's story in a couple weeks when we talk about um, the awakening of regret. But in Job's story, it's as if God listened and listened and listened and listened and God said, Stop! Enough. He says, who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself. I'm going to question you. Time to turn the tables here. And God proceeds in Job 38, 39, 40, 41 to say, who does this, Job? Who does this? 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 In Job 40, God says this. Well, the one who, or God says, well, the one who contends with the Almighty correct him. Let him who answers God accuses God answer him. And Job replies, uh, "I'm unworthy. I kind of said something, and I better shut up." It's basically what Job said. He then goes on to say, "My eyes." My ears, excuse me, had heard, but my eyes have now seen. And he fell on his face, humbled before God, and just wept. And if you've ever been in the place where you have wrestled with God, there was a time in my life where I really wrestled with what God was doing. I couldn't make sense out of some things that he had allowed to happen in my life. And I said, God, why? Why? I wrestled with God. And God doesn't have to give us answers. He never does. doesn't have to. But for me, it was dark. It was black. It was lonely. God was nowhere there. I came back the next day, same thing. The next day, same thing. And then God in His mercy in my life, and God doesn't always do this. It's as if He pulled back the curtain and said, John, I want to pull back the curtain. I want you to see something that you've not been able to see before. I was like... Oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense now, God. And I found myself saying, God, I I surrender. I accept whatever you have, whatever your plan, whatever it is you want. Finding your way back to God really begins, first of all, with you surrendering. With you saying, God, I'm I'm just I'm gonna give I'm gonna put my hands up in the air and say, I surrender. I surrender. My hopes, my dreams, my wishes, whatever it is that I wanted, God, I'm just, I, I want you more than I want them. 
And that's ultimately what God challenges us to wrestle with. Do you want Him more than you want them? And if you're trying to find your way back to God, you're going to have to say, I surrender, and lay some of those things down. And that doesn't mean that God won't provide them or meet your needs or show up, but you have to make that choice. The second thing, finding my way back to God, is it's holding on to hope. Holding on to hope. You know, one thing I know about skeptics is you can't answer a skeptic's question and all the other questions disappear like dominoes. They all fall down. That doesn't work with a skeptic. It doesn't. You answer a skeptic's question, guess what? They got another one for you. And then they got another one. 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 And you know what I think happened with Thomas when he said, my Lord and my God? I think Thomas believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But I am very confident that Thomas had a lot of other questions. He's like, what about that eat my, eat my body and drink my blood thing? You know, what about that I am the door thing? You know, what about that I am the good shepherd? How are you? A sh- what's, that, what's that thing all about? And I think for Thomas, there was a lot of other questions that followed where he started. But I think what Thomas needed was he needed something to hold on to that he could anchor himself to that says, God, I don't really understand all of these and I'm not sure if Jesus will ever answer all these questions, but I'm going to hold on to that hope. And the hands and the wounds of of Jesus that Thomas saw gave him just enough hope to hold on to And the last thing that finding your way back to God is, it's discovering and experiencing God's unconditional love for you. Finding and experiencing God's unconditional love for you. Do you realize no one on this earth can love you unconditionally? Nobody can. Can you think of a time you offered something to someone and they didn't respond back to you? What did your heart do? I'd likely expose something about how conditional our love is for one another. Last night, my wife and daughter and I, we were down the, we had dinner together and uh, we're watching a TV show on a series on Netflix, watching an episode of that as we were eating dinner. And, and uh, after we finished, they were both working on some things. And so um, I picked up the dishes and I took the dishes upstairs and um, cleaned up the dishes and uh, put all the food away and, and I don't normally do this. I'm not quite sure why I did it, but I just felt prompted to do it and so I did it. It wasn't for a message illustration this morning. Um, but I just did it. And, um, and as I'm doing this, in the back of my mind, do you know what's going through the back of my mind? Anybody know what I'm thinking? Is she going to notice? And is she going to say anything? That's what I'm thinking. Now she did. She did. But um, I realized, man, I couldn't even clean up the dishes sacrificially. <laughs> you know? i got to get something for me. And the reality, the painful reality is this is the way we love. We love in such a way that we have to get something back. And the only way we will ever experience the unconditional acceptance of the Father, like that Son coming home, is when we find our way back to God.
It's the only place you will know and experience that. Because he loves you even if you can't, or even if you choose not to, love him back. Apparently the painful events of the past few months had been too much for Elizabeth. She'd either repressed memories of the rapes, captivity, and indoctrination that she had been through, or she simply couldn't deal with them any longer. It was as though she didn't know she was lost anymore. She had forgotten who she really was and to whom she belonged. It almost kept her from being found and from going home. But that police officer looked into her eyes and he gently said something like this. He said, I know who you are. You are Elizabeth Smart. You've been found. And I want to take you home. She was silent. She was silent. He then showed her a missing persons poster with her picture on it. She looked up with him, looked up at him with tears filling her eyes and said, Thou sayeth, I'll say it. In other words, if you say so. I believe God's saying that gently to many of us right now. I know who you are. I know the journey you've been on. I know that you've been here week after week, maybe year after year, and you long for this relationship with me. You long for something deep and meaningful, this connection with the God of the universe. I know that you've wandered down some paths that you wish you wouldn't have, and you live with some regret that I wish you'd never had to face. But now I'd like to bring you back home. And my challenge for you over these next few weeks is will you pray that wager prayer with me? Will you say, God, if you are real, make yourself real to me. And I believe that if you pray that prayer that God is going to show up in your job. God's going to show up in your classroom. God's going to show up on the sports field. God's going to show up in your marriage. God's going to show up in your parenting. God's going to show up in your workplace. God's going to show up in the chaos that you call your life. Because God is looking for people who want to find Him. He's just waiting as a father to bring you back home. Would you join me in just close in prayer? As I close in prayer. And as I do, I just want to invite you to talk to God about where you feel far from Him right now. Maybe you're a little bit like that older brother and you just feel this At times, frustration and anger that you've poured yourself out to God. You've given your life. But God's pretty far away. 
Maybe you're like the younger brother and you've, you've kind of gone your own way and you've chosen your path and you've, you live with some consequences of that. And it's time to come back home. It's time to come back home to God. And He's waiting there for you. God, you know each of our stories. You know where each of us are. You're an amazing Father who is just waiting for us to come back home. And so Lord, as we enter this series over these next few weeks, my prayer for us is that we will continually seek after You. We will continually call out to You. We will continually say, God, if You're real, make Yourself real to me. And that, God, You will show up in our lives in amazing ways. And as you do, God, you will awaken the life that you have established, that you long for us to live in relationship with you. God, awaken our souls, we pray.